thank you uh, for that time of dedicating our kids, and it was very meaningful to us. Um, we have the most kids in the church, so <laughs> uh, it means a lot when we have a community saying, hey, we'll babysit. Uh, that's pretty much what you guys were saying earlier. Uh, so um, welcome. Those of you guys who came in a little bit later, um, uh, if this is your first time at Trinity Life Church, uh, just excited to have you guys here. We have been going through a series um, in the last month or so called Big City Big Questions and really just kind of gone through a bunch of questions that we think um, is pertinent to uh, what our people in this in Toronto are asking, what, our, what, uh, what uh, our friends and our co-workers are asking in regards to the Christian faith. A part of it is to help you process some things that maybe you're going through and part of it also is if you're a Christian is to maybe uh, give you some things to resource you with when you're talking to people about faith. And so um, just have had a tremendous response over the last uh, five to six weeks as we've gone through this. And so I encourage you, if you have not had a chance to listen to any of the messages, that you go to the website, uh, trinitylife.ca slash sermons, and you can download some of the uh, uh, sermons from the last couple of weeks. And so today we're actually uh, tackling, um, I don't know, this is definitely the hardest one, I think. Um, but we're asking the question, uh, is there a universal meaning and purpose to life? Uh, sometimes people ask it, you know, I mean, what's the purpose of life? Or, you know, uh, you know, are we all created for the same thing? And so um, it tends to be kind of the most philosophical question out of all of the questions that we went through as well. Um, it's got that very philosophical feel. Um, but the honest truth is that this isn't a thought experiment this morning. That this is a very real question that we need to ask ourselves, because this gets at the heart of what we think is objective truth. Um, the, the question of, you know, is there meaning to life is actually getting to the heart of objective truth. Why you make the decisions that you make every single morning, uh, every single day, why you're, why you're picking and choosing the careers that you're picking and choosing. So uh, this is at the heart of those issues. Um, so I'm not taking us through a debate or a thought experiment. I'm gonna present two views. But actually what I hope to do is um, that every one of us, that all of us, that we would just be challenged to undermine everything about our lives right now. That you would just begin to at least just undermine the things, the suppositions that you believe. I want you to get at the foundation for why you do the things that you do. And if you don't like the foundation that you're standing on, that you would have the courage to choose something else as your foundation. All right. Um, so for a second here, I want to shift the question just a little bit, just to make it sound a little bit different. Uh, but instead of asking, is there universal meaning and purpose, I want us to ask, where do people, where do people find meaning and purpose in life? And as Dahlia read through Ecclesiastes 2 there, you'll notice that there are three different categories that the Ecclesiastes writer, and Ecclesiastes just means the preacher or the gatherer. In modern times, it can even mean the philosopher, Okay. Um, and so what he's writing about really is um, he finds three different categories. If you scan through the um, passage that um, uh, Dahlia read, there's the category of finding meaning and pleasure in money, uh, and then pleasure in sex, and then power. And so these are the three categories that uh, the philosopher or the preacher is talking about how people find meaning and purpose in life. Um, man, 3,000 years later, Things haven't changed, right? 
if you look in other parts of the, um, of the chapter and in the rest of the book, you'll, you'll, you'll discover this, that the preacher, the philosopher, uh, philosopher finds also, uh, he tries to find meaning in wisdom and in work, and then also even in justice. Um, but he concludes with the same thing. He says that the same thing about money, sex, and power, the same thing about wisdom, work, and justice. He says that even the most noblest things can be done in vain. Everything is like chasing the wind, right? Um, if you read Ecclesiastes, it sounds just kind of really gloomy and dark, right? It's just like this guy is way too, like, negative. He's way too self-absorbed. He's obviously not a commoner. He's got way too much time on his hand to think about these questions and to not be satisfied with money, sex, and power. If you had that, you think you would be some level of measure of, like, pleasure in life. Uh, maybe he's ungrateful. Maybe he's just, like, hard to please, um, I mean, these are some of the things that kind of come up when you think about uh, his response. But I think it's pretty obvious uh, if you read, uh, again, what, we, uh, what Dolly just read. I think it's pretty obvious that uh, he's not saying that these things aren't meaningful and that they don't contribute to, to some kind of utilitarian value in your life. But I think it's, it's pretty obvious what he's, he's really saying. He's saying before there was Plato, all right, so the writer is actually writing this in 3000 B.C., so, I'm sorry, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 B.C. So that was before Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, all the people that you study in university. Before any of these philosophers existed, the preacher is saying, saying this. He's saying that based on experience, even the most pleasure-giving things in life and even the most noblest causes in life cannot fill the void called meaning and purpose. Based on experience, I just let you guys know, like, it just doesn't fill that void. As a matter of fact, we, we place the weight, this impossible weight on these things to carry something that they really can't carry. They weren't made for that, right? We expect these things to tell us who we are and why we are, right? And so you work really hard to get your PhD. Some of you guys are in that process right now. And you may wake up one morning and you says, man, you know, six years of study for three, three letters behind my name, right? Um, keep working, Stephen. You're going you're gonna to do it. Yeah. We got two Stevens working on their PhDs right now. No. Uh, you guys will do it, right? The preacher is saying that uh, these are fantastic gifts. They're very noble, but they make terrible gods. Hey, terrible gods. The expectations that you have for these things to fulfill you are on par with the expectations that you would have of a God, really. Because you expect them to tell you who you are, how valuable you are. But what happens is that because they're not built for that, either at the end of the day, you will crush them or they will crush you. Right? Here's a modern example. Everybody loves Jim Carrey, right? He's from Toronto. Everybody loves Jim Carrey. You don't have to consult the philosophers. Um, I read a fantastic interview um, of Jim Carrey. And uh, he said three things that I just want to uh, kind of just um, uh, share with us to, to further this point. He says, I tend to stay up late, not because I'm partying, but because it's the only time of the day when I'm alone and I don't have to feel like I'm performing. Right? He says, that's the trouble with me. At this point, nobody gives a darn what my problem is. I could literally have a tumor on the side of my head and they'd be like, yeah, big deal. I'd eat a tumor every morning for the kind of money you're making. And then lastly, he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see 
that it's not the answer. Right? It's not just the philosophers. It's all of us. Uh, my sermon gets darker than that. <laughs> it gets deeper than that. For those of you guys who are first time in church, uh, sorry we're so heavy this morning. <laughs> uh, Albert Camus, uh, he's an Algerian French philosopher and writer. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957. It's hard to research purpose and meaning and not uh, come across his work, The Myth of the Sisyphus. Uh, and it's an essay that he wrote. And this is what he writes. He says, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. All the rest, whether or not the world has three dimensions, whether the mind has nine or twelve categories, comes afterwards. These are games. One must first answer. He's saying, like, suicide. Like, how do you... Like, how do you find meaning for life? Because if you don't answer that question, it doesn't matter what other questions you're trying to answer, right? Uh, at this point, you say, yeah, that's really heavy. That's really dark for a Sunday morning. But it's true, though. Right? Many of us assume that life is worth living for, but if I were to ask you, then why? Like, why? why? Right? I mean, if very, you wouldn't go to an appointment without knowing a reason why. Why would you live your life without knowing a reason why? Like, why would you play chess if you think the game of chess is stupid? Why would you fall in love if the other person is just a blob of molecules and chemicals? Why? Right. Too dark, too heavy, too much, too deep. But it's true, though, right? I mean, young, I mean you're holding hands. Like, he's just a blob of chemicals and molecules, right? So what I want to do is I want to look at two different opinions of where meaning and uh, purpose comes from. Uh, and the first one is that it's self-created, that we make things up, right? This is not to put it in a negative light, but uh, humanists, and this is by and large a humanist argument, that we, we just make things up, uh, that there is no universal meaning. Everybody has their own meaning, their own truth. And so uh, I bought a book uh, last year by a guy named A.C. Grayling, and he's a humanist philosopher. And he writes this about humanist thought. He says, humanism is the ethical outlook that say each individual is responsible for choosing his or her own values and goals, working towards the latter in the light of the former, and is equally responsible for living considerately towards others with a special view of establishing good relationships at the heart of life, because all good lives are premised on such. What is he saying? He's saying that you choose whatever is good for you as long as you're not hurting other people then it must be good, right? And that's not a terrible way to live, honestly. I mean, if you can be considerate of other people, then, I mean, who cares if you call yourself, you know, um, a purple Martian? Like, it doesn't matter as long as you're not hurting somebody. I re read this uh, satire article uh, this week. I, I, I posted it on Facebook. Some of you guys commented on it, thinking that it was, it was real. It was just satire. But it's this couple in Washington State who just raised their child up to be speciesless. Uh, did you guys read that article? I, so it's not true, all right, it's satire. Uh, I thought it was true. Uh, but who's to say that if that was true, that that would be wrong, right? I mean, they're not hurting anybody, maybe except for that poor kid. Uh, but that's their truth, it's not hurting anybody. Um, I saw a video uh, of Christopher Hitchens. He was a, a brilliant guy, actually, uh, an atheist philosopher. 
And so they ask him the question, uh, what's the purpose of life? And in the video, uh, he answers very facetiously, uh, and he's got his British accent, so it just sounds really cool and clever, right? Uh, but he says, uh, okay, so what cheers me up? Well, mainly the gloating over the misfortune of other people. And the audience laughs and applauds. Mainly crowing over the misery of others. And then there's more laughter. It doesn't always completely work, but it also doesn't ever completely fail. More laughter. He pauses and then he continues and he says, sex does have diminishing returns, but it's amazing. And the audience roars. And he says, oh, no, that's pretty much it. And everything else is just a pathway to the grave. And Hitchens is being humorous, right? He's just being funny, but maybe he's not. What, what if he's right? Is he right? If there's no adherent meaning to life, then Hitchens could be right. It's okay to gloat over people in their misery. It makes you feel better, right? When other people fail and you succeed, yes, I feel so much better. Right? Sex is amazing, right? If it makes him happy, why not let him do it? But is it true? Like, is that the way? I want you to understand that we live in a city where this is the prevailing mindset. I'm not saying it's the worst way to live. There are other ways to live that's worse than this. But this is the prevailing mindset in which we were raised as a generation. This is the prevailing mindset of our coworkers, our leaders, that if you can create meaning for yourself and it doesn't hurt other people, then it's good. Oz Guinness, who's a cultural commentator, he writes this in his book, A Free People's Suicide. He says, unfettered freedom could prove to be the Achilles heel of the modern world, dissipating into license, triviality, corruption, grand undermining of all authority. But for the moment, the world is still both thrilled and enthralled by the great age of freedom. He's saying... We love the idea of freedom, but it's going to tear us apart. We don't have to look at society. Just think about yourself. Like, just, we don't have to worry about Toronto. Don't worry about, like, your coworkers. Just think about yourself. If your life is spinning out of control, even as a Christian, backtrack for a moment right now. Just backtrack. If, you're, if you just seem like you're anxious, you're always stressed, you're always worried, backtrack. Like, today, are you... You're living out what you thought was meaningful five to ten years ago. Think about that. Right? Some of us are in situations that five, ten years ago you decided for yourself to be meaningful. How's that working out for you? Like some of you guys have made peace with your decisions. But how, how is life today working out for you? For those of us who life just seems to be spinning out of control and you're managing to get by, a big part of that could be this, that the meaning that you've chose for yourself is starting to, to crack. That foundation is starting to break apart. I want to look at another uh, um, point of view. Um, this is called the life of absurdity. Okay? Uh, as you study kind of how the philosophers talk about meaning and purpose, um, the absurd is not the idea that you create meaning for yourself, but the idea that there is no meaning. Like, there is no meaning to life. And the faster you accept that, the happier you'll be. Right? There is no meaning to life. If you can just shut up and stop complaining, you'll be happy. All right? So um, in Albert Camus' essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, are you guys familiar with The Myth of Sisyphus at all? Have you studied philosophy at all? Okay. 
So a couple of you guys. So it's kind of it's actually kind of a funny uh, uh, story. It's about a, a king. He's the king of Corinth, who the gods punishes because he overcomes Hades and death and stuff like that. So they're out to get him, and so the way that they punish him is this: they make him roll this big heavy rock up the up a hill. Okay, are you familiar with this? Yeah. And then at, as soon as he gets to the top of the hill, what happens? Like the rock drops to the other side of the hill, and then he has to go down, and then he has to roll it up again. And so the gods just think it's funny that he does this for the rest of his life. Like, you know, it's almost as bad as those of us who do data entry. It's just like, ah, oh, right, I'd rather roll the rock. <laughs> I used to be in, uh, in uh, telemarketing, and that was a painful job. Like, you know, just, and we had telemarketers, we have like the uh, auto dial, and so you, know, you don't know who you're calling. And so somebody just says hello on the other end, and just it's, it's the most painful experience to do for eight to ten hours a day, right? So Sisyphus is doing this activity over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, all right? He's got pretty strong arms and legs at this point. And this is uh, what Camus says about Sisyphus. He says, so as long as Sisyphus accepts that there is nothing more to life than this absurd struggle, then he can find happiness in it. If you can just suck it up, you'd be happy about your situation. Just, I mean, you would be better, right? Uh, he's coming pretty close to what the Ecclesiastes writer is saying. He's, I mean, the guy's saying, like, you got to enjoy life, even though things seem unmeaningful. But what he's really saying is that um, struggle, data entry, serving coffee, Excel spreadsheets, changing diapers, the TTC, exams, resumes, the quicker you accept it, the happier you'll be. It's not a terrible way to think. But this is where he differs from the Ecclesiastes writer. He thinks that if you can manage to accept meaninglessness and stop complaining, you'll be happy. If you start appreciating the rock, your happiness will return to you. Here's the only problem with this. Even though there's a shade of truth in this, here's the only problem with this, right? There are some of us who we've been rolling that rock for a long time. And it just feels like it's getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And happiness just seems further and further and further. This is not true. And sometimes despair can be so overwhelming and you're asking the questions, what if I don't measure up? What if I don't live the life that I thought I can live up to, right? This is a huge question that our city is asking. What if I live below my potential, right? Uh, what if I achieve everything? What if I live above my potential and I still don't find happiness, right? And so uh, Camus assumes that all of us are as strong as Sisyphus and that we can keep pushing this rock. But the truth is this, that those of us who are pushing this rock, who are the rock of data entry or the rock of whatever it is that you're doing, most of us find that we're really not that strong, that we're not as strong as Sisyphus. And here's the truth. For those of us who are strong, we're pushing the rock and we're realizing this. We're not getting happier. We're just getting more and more bitter. Like, I genuinely just hate my job. I'm not saying that. I love my job. But some of you, you just really hate your job. And you're not becoming more and more happy. You're becoming more and more bitter and pessimistic. Because you're leaning into it some more, and you're, the more you lean into it, the more you find out that, ah, oh, this really, I've confirmed my suspicions. My job does suck. I've confirmed my suspicions. Like, dating sucks in, in the city, right? Being a Christian and dating, that really, really sucks, right? 
And so you're realizing that what, what Camus is saying is that it's not true to your experience, right? I want to, uh, at this point, stop um, the philosophy because I think it only takes you so far. I wanted to bring my little bottle of antidepressants that I have. I don't take antidepressants, but I have a bottle to remind me of the city that we live in. It's not wrong to take antidepressants, but we got a bottle at home to remind me that we live in a city that runs so fast and we exhaust ourselves and we never stop to ask the question why. Why am I doing this? I want to speak to those of us who struggle with anxiety and depression, which is a large number of us. I want you to take heart that you're not alone. I was talking to a couple of you this week, that you're not alone. As a matter of fact, uh, what you get to experience on an ongoing basis is actually the essence of our human condition. Congratulations, you just get to feel it more. <laughs> You're like, eh. <laughs> what you, the anxiety that you feel, that is the essence of the human experience apart from God. Some of us are just better at masking it than you are. Trust me, this is true. That's, we're, some of us are just way better at masking the stress and the anxiety and the depression. We have found better coping mechanisms but we are in the same exact situation as you are. You're not alone. All things being equal, if you don't have a serious mental health condition uh, and you still find yourself always worrying, always depressed, always wondering if you're like valuable, right? Uh, always second guessing if you're worth it. Um, it's not that you have a meaning and a purpose problem, right? It's not that. It's that you have a foundation problem. Your foundation is cracking. Things are beginning to leak. It hurts. It's embarrassing. People are seeing your stuff. You can't hold it together. You're always irritated, and people notice that. The Bible has diagnosed this condition already. The Bible calls it sin. Fortunately, everybody's got what you've got. So this is not a pointing a finger game. Everybody has this condition. It's worse than Ebola. It's more pervasive than Ebola. Right. Um, I want you to feel the weight of this. Like, oh, so dark. How do we shake this up? Like, I don't want us to be like so dark and gloomy, but uh, it gets worse. <laughs> uh, um, I want you to feel the weight about the weight that young people carry in our city. All right, we're average here, not as young as you think you are. There are younger people in our city. I want you to feel the weight of this. Ola, you can confirm this, all right? Okay, I found a stat about OCAD. But I want you to feel the weight of this, and if possible, if possible, even weep over this. But the National Collegiate Health Assessment surveyed university students all across North America. OCAD is the most depressed school in North America. 77% have had thoughts of suicide. 66% of OCAD students say they felt hopeless at some point in the past 12 months. 15% said they would seriously consider suicide. 
You may say, oh, that's, that's the artist. They're all artists. They're all dramatic. They're gloomy. That's what inspires them. Look at Van Gogh. He chopped off his own ear. No. That's somebody's 18-year-old daughter. That's somebody's 19-year-old son. That's a campus that's two kilometers west of here. This is not a meaning and purpose issue. This is a foundation issue. And we're starting to see that the foundation of our society, the foundation of our lives, has cracks in them. Anxiety, depression, stress, these are the symptoms that the ground that we're standing on isn't stable. Can I be really practical for those of us who struggle with stress, anxiety, depression? All of us feel that to a certain level. But I want you guys to have the courage to admit that there's probably some kind of, if all things equal in your, your health and mental health, right, you need more serotonin, you need to exercise more. Yes, we get that. But all things being equal, if you're, you don't have like a major mental health issue and you're constantly stressed and you're consciously, consciously anxious, I want to just gently and, and, and just lovingly say to you, be courageous to admit that you probably have an idol in your life, that God is so graciously right now working on you. Secondly is this, don't suppress it. Don't remain quiet about it. The Bible has chapters and books and books devoted to people emoting and expressing these things to the community. And thirdly, even great spiritual men in the Bible, the Apostle Paul being one, says, I have despaired even unto death. You're not alone. Even the spiritual greats experience it. What's the lesson from Sisyphus? There's, this is the thing about Sisyphus. As we study Sisyphus, you realize this. There's not, not everything is wrong about that, uh, that, but that, that story. That if you can get to the point when you realize that, oh, this really sucks, or, man, this is like starting to stress me out. I don't know if I like this. Um, it's not a terrible thing if you begin to embrace, like, okay, so life is really not what I thought it was going to be. Because what that means is this, that the idols are starting to loosen in your life. If the degree just isn't as appealing as it was before, right? Don't quit, but I'm just saying, if it happens to be like that, Stephen, uh, then the idols are, are loosening, and that's a good thing. I want to jump into <clears throat> the last passage that um, uh, uh, Dahlia read, because it's so important. I'm going to read it again in its entirety. Um, <clears throat> John chapter 1 <clears throat> says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything made was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was, was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Christian answer to, is there meaning and purpose to life? 
is essentially wrapped up in this passage. Because Jesus is the mind and the creative person behind all things, ultimately we find our identity and our destiny in him by knowing him, believing him, and discovering him. That's the Christian response to this question. He's, John capitalizes on this Greek idea that the logos um, it was a, a Greek uh, concept that behind the universe is order. There's logic, hence the word logos. There's reason. There is rhyme. There is a, like, it's not organic, but there is a mind behind the universe, right? And so the Stoics said that, don't worry, like, don't fret when things begin to break apart because that's just the mind of the universe. Things are happening the way that they are. If you're fretting, you're wasting energy because this is just how things happen. And so the Stoics were like, you know, just rock solid. Don't worry. Don't, don't show too much emotion. Right? And so this whole concept that there's this logos, this mind behind things, was blown out of the water in the face of the philosophers of the day, of modern philosophers, in the face of the darkness that we despair. Uh, experience every day, John is saying this, that the Logos, the mind of the universe, became one of us to experience everything that you experience, to shine light on your darkness. He is the light of men. He is the light of God. He is the light of your life. And he says, to the degree that you embrace him as the light in your life, then he dispels the darkness from you. And he says, by faith, if you can grasp that Jesus coming, his incarnation is an act of love, if you can manage to grasp that and believe in that, then you are no longer nameless, you're no longer meaningless, you're no longer purposelessness. You are made, it says in verse uh, 13 and 14, a child of God, not by anybody's will other than God's will himself. If you've never heard this before, all right, I'm talk to you like um, Tony Robbins. If you've never heard this before, you are valuable. You are valuable. If somebody were to give their life for you, that would demonstrate to you, you think, that you're valuable. If God himself became one like you to experience everything that you experience, to die the death that you should have died because of sin, to give you the new life that you now can live in that's freely accessible to every one of you, if that doesn't do anything for you, all of the positive talk will never cure you of your depression. To the degree that you understand that God really has, has shown himself in becoming one of you to overcome your darkness, to that degree that you accept that into your life, you begin to walk in the light, in more meaning, in more purpose. How does Jesus complete the longing that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is expressing? How does, I mean, that longing of, ah, just life isn't measuring up to what I thought it was going to be. Going back to Sisyphus, imagine this, like you, Albert Camus, he uses this because obviously Sisyphus represents us. In the Christian narrative, Jesus is Sisyphus. He's not just pushing the rock up the mountain. He's carrying our cross up the mountain. 
It makes absolutely no sense, his life that he's living. People have called Christianity a very stupid, it's a very stupid faith. Meaningless. It makes no logical sense. This is, in, in a lot of ways, the, one of the greatest critiques about Christianity. Jesus is Sisyphus. And he carries the rock, pushes the rock, carries our cross for our benefit. I want to close with uh, a story about um, an artist and a painter, or an artist and his painting. <clears throat> you just imagine this, an artist is painting a picture of a beautiful family, you know, let's say, you know, four boys, you know, an amazing, good-looking husband, a wife who's not too shabby. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful painting, right? And people come and they observe the painting and it's beautiful. It's even awe-inspiring. Like, oh, look at those boys. They're so well-behaved. Like, it inspires me to, you know, love my children. So time and time again, people walk past this painting. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. And the painter does something very unheard of. Like, it, it just, it, it actually, like, it, 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 it's, like, not physically possible to do this, but he finds a way to do it. He paints himself into the picture. So what was a family of six is now a family of seven. And the characters in the painting, like, for some reason, now that he's there, they even become more alive in the painting, and they're interacting with the artists, and they're asking him questions like, what motivated you to paint us? What were you thinking when you painted us? Why didn't you give my dad more hair, right? They're asking all, like, the mysterious questions of the universe, right? And the young smart one says, did you, in the process of painting, did you care for us? Like, did you, did you love us while you were painting us? I want to invite you this morning. That's the story of Jesus and the incarnation. It doesn't answer all the questions. But God has painted himself into creation in Jesus. And if you ask with an honest heart, if you ask with an honest heart, God, what were you thinking when you made me? Like, why this way? What were you, did you care about me in thinking up my life? God, do you love me? I challenge you, if you ask that question this morning, I almost want to promise you, you will not be disappointed with the answer that he'll give you. Let's pray. God, we live in a city that just runs way too hard, way too fast. It never stops to think why. God, as a church, we say that we represent a lifestyle that's different, an alternative. And yet the reality is that many of us, we are maxed out. And we feel 
a little bit like Sisyphus. The colors don't seem to pop as much anymore. The fall just seems like it's leaves dying. We don't notice the, the colors on the trees. Life, God, would you just breathe life back into us? Church, you are the only vehicle. You are the only vehicle that can deliver this message that the master artist has painted himself into the painting so that we could discover identity and destiny. Only you have that message, church. But the message won't come out as clear. It won't come out as clear if you don't allow God to root out the idols in your life. So God, we just this morning come before you and just say do the work that you need to do in our lives root out the things that are eating at our meaning and the purpose of our life help us to ask the questions again to the only maker who could answer those questions help us to hear your voice and in these moments Help us to recognize the voice of a good father who's come to redeem back to himself sons and daughters. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.